If you're a football fan, you may have been watching a couple weeks ago for the NFL draft. And if you're a real fan, you watched past the very first round, maybe on into the third round. And if you did, if you were still hanging around on the third round, 102nd pick overall, you heard the name Nazareth Jones. Nazareth Jones was six foot five, 305 pounds. He was from the University of North Carolina, a defensive lineman. He was chosen by the Seattle Seahawks. And it was so special when he got chosen. Not just because it's a young man's dream to play in the NFL, but because five and a half years before, he couldn't walk. You see, he was a junior in high school, already a beast of a football player, certainly a D1 prospect, lots of colleges after him. His team made it all the way to the state finals. They lost, but he had had a great game. He came home exhausted, went to bed, and when he woke up the next morning, he couldn't walk. No matter what, he couldn't get his legs to move. He began crying out, and his mother came down and saw what was going on. She called 911. The ambulance came. They took him to the hospital. Pain was building. They gave him all kinds of pain medication. Finally killed the pain, but he still couldn't walk. They sent him home in a wheelchair. And then when the medicine began to wear off, the pain came back and he kept trying to take medicine and he couldn't walk. And they kept taking him to the doctor and a different doctor. And then his mom took him to a different hospital and the days turned into weeks. They couldn't figure out what was going on. What would take a 15 and a half year old, perfectly healthy boy and suddenly you wake up and you can't walk? They finally took him to the University of North Carolina Research Hospital and there they were able to diagnose it. It turned out it was complex regional pain syndrome, a very rare disease. It usually attacks women in their late 40s. Why it attacked him and at his age, no one would have any idea. There is no real cure for the disease, though there is some treatments. They now, knowing what it was, begin to put him on IVs of emerald, the, the drug that you know that Phil Mickelson, the golfer, takes for inflammation and those kinds of things. That began to help, but he still couldn't walk. They sent him to the Ronald McDonald House there at Chapel Hill, and he would live there for the next two months. For two months, they put him through rigorous physical therapy, and then they started trying biofeedback to get his brain somehow to talk to his legs again. They literally were having to teach him how to walk all over again. And after two months, he was able to leave with a walker. And then it went to crutches. And by the next fall, he was actually ready to play football again. Now, he wasn't back to his old self. He had lost a lot of weight, a lot of strength. But he wanted to play. Can you imagine how his mother Tammy felt when he went back out to play football again? But he did go play. It was his dream. And he had had so many schools courting him. One of the number one picks out of all of North Carolina. But now in the end, only one would offer him a scholarship. 
and that would be the University of North Carolina. He would accept it. He would go. His freshman year, he'd be redshirted, and by then he had built up his strength and his weight, and, and he was back to playing, and he was amazing. And so now the scouts had told him, you probably won't go in the first round because of your medical background, but you should go somewhere between the second and the fourth round. It was exciting to be watching to see if this young man's dream was going to come true. But it was exciting not just because he had had to work so hard and he was talented, but because he was also such a good guy. When he was at the University of North Carolina, he was so grateful to the Ronald McDonald House and what it had done for him that he was always getting his football buddies together and they would go to the house to volunteer. He wanted to give back. So much had been given to him, he wanted to give back. They would do anything that he was, they were asked. They spread mulch, they washed windows, they helped cook meals. He was just grateful. He wanted to give back. While in college, he started his own nonprofit organization to be able to mentor young men who were coming from underprivileged homes to try to help them mentor them academically and athletically. He knew what it would mean to these young boys, what it had meant to him. And now the night had come. It was an exciting time to wait. One of the things, though, you didn't understand as you were kind of watching the whole story, there was an unsung hero in this whole story, and that was his mom. You see, it was his mom who was always by his side at the hospital when he was having to spend the night and on IVs. It was his mom who kept taking him to different doctors and different hospitals, not willing to accept we don't know as a diagnosis. It was his mom who had been there to encourage him. And what you saw when you kind of started reading between the lines, now on this night they're waiting for the draft, his mom had cooked up this big feast of spaghetti and sides and, and salad so that grandmother was there and the aunts were there and the cousins were there and everybody could have a watch party. The first night his name was not called. They didn't expect it to be. The second day she cooked up a, a big feast of fish and more sides and salads and desserts and again the whole family could come. Finally his name was called. What an exciting moment. And if you ask him, why did it happen? He would tell you, my mother. In those days before the diagnosis, when he couldn't walk and he was in such pain, it's his mother who would sit there at his feet and rub his feet and pray and pray. And he said, I had asked her, Mom, Do you think I'll ever play football? Yes, yes, she said. We're going to figure this out. We're going to overcome this. Yes. He said it was her encouragement, her assurance that kept me calm, kept me focused rather than letting me freak out and go insane. He turned 16 when they put him in the hospital. He said, 16-year-old who suddenly couldn't walk. I mean, I could just have gone insane. It was my mother who kept saying, it's all going to be fine. We're going to work this out. And then when she would leave, he would later learn, she would go off into another room, and there she would weep. 
But when she would come back, she would have on her face and she would be confident and upbeat and calm. We're going to do this. And so finally they called. Seattle wanted to draft him, 102nd overall, third round, and they all cheered. And the first thing he did was gave his mother the biggest hug. And now in front of everybody, she wept. A mother's love is a special love. A love that is willing to be in the background, not getting the glory in the limelight. A love that is willing to sacrifice and encourage. You know, a mother's love is a special love. It's what I thought about when I read our scripture lesson this morning. And if you notice, it's the same scripture that actually gets used in our baptism with Logan this morning as you heard us talking about Jesus and the mothers who brought the babies. It's only three verses long, but it must be important enough. It's told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's all about how a society didn't really respect women and children were considered very insignificant. And so when the women came bringing their children, their infants, and the disciples saw it, they were all saying, don't bother the master. That's what you would have expected in that society. He's an important man. Do not bother him. But Jesus saw the depth of these mother's love. They weren't coming so that they could get something from Jesus. They weren't coming so they could get next to Jesus. They were coming because they wanted Jesus to take their children, to pray over them, to bless them. It was for their children and because of the depth of their love that they came. This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series, Racing to the Flag. You know, I, I've been having fun learning all about the sport of racing, motor racing, and realizing that there are many flags that get waved in a race that communicate messages to the drivers as they're running the race. And I believe that it is Christ who so often is waving a flag for us, trying to communicate those very same messages to those of us who are running the race of life. We looked at the green flag. It says, full throttle, go. We looked at the red flag that says, stop. There is danger, an accident. There's the yellow flag. Caution, slow down. Danger on the track. Today, we look at the blue flag. And the blue flag is a little different from all the other flags because the blue flag is a courtesy flag. What that means is there's somebody out there who's having a better day than you are. It means you're about to get past. Someone is going to lap you. And when they wave the blue flag, it's alerting you, you're about to get past. And if you want to be courteous, you'll pull over and let them go. Now, you don't have to. You have to obey all the other flags, the red flag, the yellow flag, what it tells you to do. You don't have to obey the blue flag. No, it's a courtesy flag. It simply says, if you want to be kind, you'll pull over and let that other person go by. And I thought, that's what mothers do. Mothers 
are taking their children and they step aside. They're not in the limelight. No, they lift up their children. They bring their children to Jesus, not because of what they get out of it. They do it for their children. They step aside to bless them. Moms, your love is a special love. And that's why I think it is right and appropriate to come today and to say thank you. And there's really just three things that I want to say about Mother's Day and and a mother's love. First of all, I believe, moms, that you are special because you are the ones who help us become the people that God has created us to be. You are the ones who are willing to step aside and bring us to the forefront so that we can dream our dreams, even when it makes you anxious and worried and you struggle. I can only imagine how Tammy Jones felt when her son said, I'm going to go back out there and play football again. It must have scared her to death to be able to say, I'm going to step aside and lift you up even when it makes me anxious, even when this may not be my dream for your life, I will be there to encourage you to dream your dreams and to help you be that person that God has created you to be. You remember last week I started telling you about the Mario Andretti? Mario Andretti, who's definitely one of the greatest racers that America has ever produced, even though he is a native Italian, born in Italy. He was there until after World War II, and the part of Italy he lived in was being annexed by Yugoslavia, going to be under a communist dictator. The family fled and became refugees, and finally they were able to immigrate to the United States in 1955. They settled in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Settled in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, and Mario already loved racing. But it turned out that that he didn't speak English very well. And so after a couple of years, his mom and dad went out and hired an English tutor for him. It was a lady about three years younger than him. Her name was Deanne Hawk. Deanne began to teach him English. And when he finally learned how to speak English pretty well, he was able to say, will you marry me? And so in 1961, they got married, and a year later, they wound up having their first child, Michael, and then two more years later, they had another son, Jeff, and then about five years later, they had their third child, a little girl named Barbie, who was born on the day that Mario Andretti won the Indianapolis 500. Needless to say, he wasn't there for the birth, which is something Deanne had gotten used to. Now, you see, in the end, the whole family, the boys, well, they'd follow their father into racing. They would all race. And people would ask Deanne, how do you live with a husband and your sons putting their life on the line every time they go race? Her worst day was May the 24th, 1992. 25 years ago, almost now. You see, all three of them were in the same Indianapolis 500 race. Mario, Michael, Jeff, all in the race. And it was early on in the race that Mario had a crash. They took him to Methodist Hospital there in Indianapolis, and he was going to have to have his go into surgery and have his ankle repaired. 
But then Teresa Fittipaldi, the wife of Emerson Fittipaldi, called and said, get down to the emergency room. Jeff has been in a terrible accident, and it's serious. She went to the emergency room as they were bringing Jeff in. Mario's surgery had to be postponed so that Jeff could go into surgery first. In the meantime, Michael was leading the Indy 500. He led the Indy 500 for most of the race down to the last 11 laps. That's where you can taste it. The last 11 laps developed a fuel problem, a fuel pump problem, and had to drop out of the race. The disappointment, the pain, the fear. In the end, everybody wound up being okay. Everybody recovered and went back to racing. And they asked Deanne, how did you do it? She said, you don't think about it. You just do what you have to do in the moment. Later, she said, I went away by myself and I cried. They said, have you ever asked them to stop? Have you ever said, stop racing? And she looked at them and said, no. I knew what I was signing on for six back in 1961. I knew what I was signing on for. My responsibility is to be there to encourage them and to love them and to help them no matter what happens. A mother's love is a special love. A love that is willing to lift up her children even when their dreams are not your dreams. Dreams that may make you worry and anxious and afraid. And yet you lift them up. You help us to be the people God has called us to be. The mothers came to Jesus bringing their children, not because of what they were going to get out of it. They wanted Jesus to bless their children, that they might grow into the special people they were created to be. But secondly... Moms, it is through your love that we come to see and understand the sacrificial love of Christ. It is through your love that we really see the sacrificial love of Christ. Again, so often you are the one who is not being seen. You are the one who is aside, who is sacrificing and giving and holding it all together and providing so that we can pursue our dreams and be those people and grow but you are the one who is sacrificing and caring and giving. It is the way that Christ has loved us and how we are called to love one another. You know, when it comes to these kind of sentimental holidays, maybe it's just because I'm getting older, I don't know. Maybe it's because I've been here 26 years, but I find myself getting very sentimental and thinking about so many special people who've been a part of this family of faith who have entered into the kingdom of heaven. I think about these people that I have loved and who blessed my life and who blessed yours and this church and I can't help but think about them as I, as I go back and reflect. As I was working on this sermon, I, I started thinking about Ollie Bell. Most of you won't know Ollie Bell. She died back in 1996, the summer of that year. 1996, she was 104. She was born in 1892. Grew up here in Oklahoma. Can you imagine what she saw from 1892 
1996. I, I mean, the changes that she saw in her state. She was an amazing lady, loved her church. But growing up in the early 1900s, she was very smart. And it turned out that she wanted to go to college, but her father said, women don't go to college. In the early 1900s, they didn't. And so we sent her to tailoring school so she could learn how to sew. She got married. More than anything in the world, she wanted to be a mom. The children never came. She had friends, though, who were involved in the real estate business, and they got to talking to Ollie and got her involved in the real estate business. And she started building apartment buildings. She's built a number of the apartment buildings right here in Midtown. She built them. She managed them. She would sell them. She became quite the entrepreneur and business lady who was amazingly successful. She and her husband bought a ranch. They ran cattle. They ran horses. No, she did all kinds of amazing things and then finally passed away at 104. And when I started looking at her life and learning all about more of the previous heir, and then I looked at how she spent her time and her money, it became clear to me. I mean, she left half her estate to the church. But I looked at all the other things she gave her monies to. The children's art program at Oklahoma City University taught by Claire Looper. She supported so many programs for our children and youth here at the church. The rest of her money was given to colleges and universities for scholarships so students could go to school. And I started thinking, the two greatest disappointments in her life, she didn't get to go to college, and she never had any children are the very ways that she gave her time and money to bless children and help people go to college. And I thought of how Ollie really was a mother to so many. She was a mother to so many. She blessed us all. It was a sacrificial love through her own disappointments. I thought about how As a family of faith, it's when you and I choose to sacrifice without worry of what we get out of it, that we too live that sacrificial love of Christ. And we do such an amazing job. You are incredible. You know, I look at our after-school programs, what we're doing right now through Rancho Village, where we wind up doing so much with all of our um, mentoring and an after-school program for sports. I look at what we're doing through Studio 222. I look at what we're doing through El Sistema, our after-school music program. Do you know that we relate to more than 15 different Oklahoma City public schools reaching out to bless kids because you give your time, your talent, you mentor, you give your money. We take up our Easter offerings and our Christmas offerings. This past week, the Oklahoma City Public School Foundation was having their awards banquet, naming Teacher of the Year. They had about 400 people come together to celebrate and to name the Teacher of the Year. But they also named the Perfect Faith Partner of the Year. And they chose St. Luke's. They chose you. Because of all the incredible work, they began noticing so much down at Rancho Village. 
but they saw what we did through El Sistema and Studio. We do the right thing because it's the right thing. And it requires sacrifice and effort. It's where we kind of step aside and you lift up the children. Jesus saw the incredible depth of love of these moms. And though everybody else was saying, don't bother him, Jesus sat down and said, let the children come to me. And so third, I think it is right and good that we would come on this day to remember and to give thanks. You need to remember the women who have blessed your life. Remember, for some of us, our mothers in the kingdom of heaven, we remember and we give God thanks for the sacrifices and the love and the way they encouraged us to be the people God created us to be. For some, you're lucky enough to be sitting beside your mom today. And if you're not, you better call your mother this afternoon. <laughs> That's not an option. No, it's important to remember and to give thanks. If you were part of this church about 15 years ago, you'll remember on a Wednesday night, a live program, we gathered here in the sanctuary and we had a guest speaker. His name was Eleazar. Eleazar was from Jerusalem. He was Jewish. He, he stood about this tall. He was 80 years old. And I mean, this guy was a fireball. He had energy. He was sharp. And he spoke with an accent. I loved being around Eleazar. He came to talk to us, though, about what his life had been like and how he had survived the Holocaust. He was here with his wife, Rivka. But he stood down here and he talked and he told us about how growing up in Poland, his family was a happy family, a wonderful mom and dad, two brothers, a sister. They would worship together. They would pray together. They would play together. And then in 1939, the Germans came, swept up all the Jews in the area, put them into this ghetto, walled them off. 22,000 Jews crammed into this small place. They couldn't go to work. It was hard to get food. The Germans gave them very little. They needed still some young men to work on the army base. And it turned out that Eleazar was strong. He was young. He had a good spirit. And so he was given a permit to work on the army base. And he would work and he'd get paid and then he'd buy food and smuggle it back into the ghetto for his mom and dad, for his brothers and sister. He did it for three years, taking care of the family. It was so hard. But then one night word came, tomorrow there's going to be a deportation. Don't be here if you can help it. A deportation tomorrow. And Eleazar went to the ghetto and he showed up at home. And his parents said, what are you doing here? I've come to be with my family. What are you doing here? You can't be here. I'm not leaving. He got into an argument with his brothers and sisters. It went on for a while until finally his mother in a very calm voice said, Eleazar, we need to take a walk. And she took him by the arm and they started to walk. 
It was a seven-minute walk from their house to the edge of the camp. He said, I wanted that seven minutes to go on forever. I wanted time to stand still. They made the walk in silence, and when they came to the edge of the ghetto, his mother turned to him and said, Eleazar, you have to go. I have prayed, and God has told me, you will survive. And your life will be sweet. You must go. Live and tell our story. She then reached under her shawl and pulled out a porcelain cup, and it was full of honey. He said, I hadn't seen honey in three years. And she handed it to him and said, Go. Your life will be sweet. Live and tell our story. He hugged his mother. He kissed her. She turned around and she walked away. The next day, the deportation came. They took all of those Jews and they put them on these cattle cars and they shipped them a day's journey away to the gas camps. Two days later, his whole family was gone. 22,000 Jews were dead. Eleazar would ultimately live in four different concentration camps. He would finally be freed by the soldiers in Patton's army. And when he was freed, he went to go live in Jerusalem, and there he met Rivka. And they had children, and then they had grandchildren, and then great-grandchildren. And he pulled out a porcelain cup. He had the porcelain cup and he said, my life has been sweet. And whenever I tell our story, I feel my mother's presence. I feel her love. And I know she is smiling at me. Mothers, your love is a special love. That sacrifices, that is willing to step aside to lift us up so that we might become the people that God has created us to be, to pursue our dreams. When the blue flag is waved, moms know what to do. The mothers came carrying their children, and Jesus saw the depth of their love. And he said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Mothers, thank you for the way that you love. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.